Supporting students with diverse needs has changed a lot in education over the years, and segregated and exclusionary practices of the past are no longer acceptable in education. An inclusionary model is now expected to meet the needs of students. This means all students attend and are welcomed by their neighborhood schools in age-appropriate regular classes and are supported to learn, contribute, and participate in all aspects of school. Within an inclusionary model, a team approach is necessary and involves professionals with differing roles and responsibilities. One important member of this team is the educational support teacher. In this episode, we will be exploring the role of the educational support teacher in an inclusive school model by chatting with two teachers who take on this role within their schools. Melissa and Sandra share their experiences, beliefs, joys, and challenges as teachers whose focus it is to implement inclusive education so that positive outcomes can be met for all students. We hope you enjoy this episode. The educational support teacher or student support teacher, the title seems to change quite often. In my career as a teacher, I found I started off as a special ed teacher. Then I became a learning assistance teacher. And now I'm a educational or student support services teacher. So the title changes quite often. Um, These teachers, though, play an important role in an inclusive school model and supporting the diverse needs of students. In this episode, we will be speaking with two educational support teachers, Melissa and Sandra. Welcome. Hi. Hello. So we're going to start off by uh, telling us or telling the listeners a little bit about your educational journey as a teacher and what has led you to your current position in supporting inclusive education. So Sandra, we'll begin with you. I graduated with my Bachelor of Education from U of M in 96, and um, I didn't teach until 2005. I I was, um, my spouse was getting moved around a lot with the military, so I did things like substitute teach in Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. I worked as a correctional officer with youth in Manitoba and Ontario, worked as a youth care worker in a residential treatment treatment facility with youth. And then it brought me, all of it just brought me back to where I, I needed, knew I needed to go all along. So 2005, I started teaching. I taught for a few years uh, at the residential treatment facility that I taught at. And, and then I remember I was interviewing to go, we were moving to Manitoba and I was going to apply to teach at the correctional facility that I used to work as a correctional officer at and I was thinking oh what do I how do I differentiate like I was thinking preparing myself for the interview how do I differentiate learning and how do I use like special education um tools with students and things like that so I, I found I drew a blank because one of my coworkers had to say to me well Sandra it's because it's all you do it's not it's because where I taught it was all I ever did so it was really hard to actually I guess make it separate from my practice as a teacher. So it was just all I ever knew as a beginning teacher because you were in that homogeneous classroom in the sense that all of the students were having difficulty experiencing success. So then I ended up uh, relocating to Prince Albert and I was six years as a vice principal, but largely my teaching, when I had a teaching role, it was student support. And then now I'm 
peer and support teacher over at Sask Rivers. Boy, that was quite the journey, hey? I feel like you can't, I don't know, you can't gloss over that because for me, it was it's why I am where I am. I feel like it's, sometimes I feel like I've done a lot of different jobs, but really, it, I'm, I really stayed in the same zone the whole time, I feel, so. Just yeah. kind of supporting students and yeah. diverse needs all along the way. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Sandra. How about you, Melissa? What's your journey been in teaching? You know, there's some parallels to Sandra's story, too. Uh, I convocated in 2004 and started teaching in 2004. But as a new teacher with no experience, I went where the jobs were. And I went to a very, very, very small town just north of the Montana border in Saskatchewan. And that's where I taught. And I was the senior student support services teacher there. I had no intention of doing ed support or special ed. I'm just going to call it special ed. It's a mouthful with our current title. So um, I'm <laughs> just going to call it special ed. But you know, I moved, I moved to Humboldt. And that's where I had spent a large part of my career from there. Uh, and I was hired to do a transition program. So kids that were kind of like what we have here in the city, kids who needed some extra support transitioning from grade eight to grade nine uh, came through me. Um, but, you know, it was pretty wide. It was pretty wide ranging what their definition of need some extra support to transition um, because we had kids that were in the system or um, like it, they were had been incarcerated or had had incidents of, of extreme violence. Um, and then other kids who just, you know, needed some help catching up with their math and other kids who maybe just had some social issues that they needed working through. And I did that for a number of years until I cracked out a couple of mat leaves. And then I moved over to just what was my intention initially um, was to just teach senior English. That was my goal. I had a degree in English. That's what I wanted to do. And you know what? Like, really, I loved it. It was I was passionate about it. I did English and math. But I just, I don't know, it didn't scratch that itch for me. Anyway, for uh, there's a long background story, but my husband and I and the family ended up needing to move a little bit closer to home, wanted to move a little bit closer to home. And much like Sandra, I got a job as a prison teacher at Saskatchewan Penitentiary. When they were recruiting, they wanted, um, they said, you know, the perks, leave the classroom and come to us. But the perks were for, um, you know, your day is done when your day is done. And if photocopying is not done today, you can do it tomorrow. And if marking is not done today, you can do it tomorrow or the day after. Like it's not, you're not running on a traditional school um, schedule. But I feel like when I moved there, much like Sandra had said, the classroom was um, all encompassing. So while I dealt mostly with, um, it was only adults at the penitentiary, but um, I dealt the senior English, senior math. So I dealt with the more capable academic wise students, but it was still um, daily interventions that I was offering. So it was, you know, I found myself in Humboldt in in the in Ben Goff where I was initially I did student support and then in Humboldt um transitions working with the kids on the periphery the kids who are marginalized so it's kind of student support and then in um SAS Penn um lots of student support reading instruction and you know it just it brought me to this so when it was time for me to go back into the real world leave prison life because I never planned on being a lifer there um I knew that's kind of where I wanted to go. I was already in school seeking out additional training for it. And yeah, I kind of landed where exactly where I wanted to land. So that's how I got here. Never intended to, but that's <laughs> how I got here. That's kind of how the way it goes sometimes, hey? What we yeah. think 
path we think we're going to take diverges and we take another path. And sometimes it's a better path for us. It's more well suited to, to us. Great. Those are both really interesting stories. And I think it leads well into our next question with both of you having so much experience. But how would you define inclusive education? And what do you feel is and is not inclusive education? So whoever can just jump right in. Okay, I'll go. I'll tell you what it's not because I'll, I feel like I'm going to tread carefully here. I feel like inclusive education is not dumping a child who needs extra help into a classroom and then abandoning them there with just the teacher who has to serve the needs of how many other children. So inclusive education is not everybody learning in the same room while abandoning a child with needs. That's not what it is. And I have very, very big feelings about that. Sorry. So that's the opposite. So <laughs> if we're doing concept attainment here, that's a non-example of inclusive education. <laughs> no, I don't I know. That that's, that's a good point, though, because I feel like a lot of times that is what happens, right? And it's, I feel like sometimes the classroom teacher doesn't have the skills or they have their own biases that are not enabling them to do their job to the fullest extent. And a lot of times they just need more support and that looks different for every classroom teacher, right? It's a tough balance because I, I personally feel like inclusive education is great, but I feel like we kind of missed a step in the process mm-hmm. of it. Like mm-hmm. all these kids are now going to be in the mainstream classroom, which is where they belong. And it, there's so many benefits if you look at the research, but then you also need to make sure that that teacher who's in the classroom is well supported and knows how to reach that student and include them in a way that is authentic. So Sandra or Melissa, if you guys have anything more to add to that question. Yeah, I always think about the inclusion without support is just plain old abandonment. You're just abandoning the child. And I think, and just in the roles that I've worked with my colleagues over the years, for me, I don't see teachers getting burnt out by working hard. Teachers are just built to work hard. That, that's been my experience. That's the gift of a teacher that they bring. They will bust it as hard as they can. But when they don't feel effective, when they see that the, a child is being abandoned, they put it all on them. And then it's, it's just a recipe for burnout. So I saw that for sure. For what I know that inclusion is a, like I, I thought about this question, inclusion is a, you know, it's a philosophy. And I think that it's something that threads every, as an, as an ed support teacher, I mean, it's a part of every conversation that you have in your day um, when you're, when you're planning for students and when you're collaborating to plan for students. Uh, I want, I want to share this, something that meant so much to me in my career. And it was um, when I did my post back in special education there, one of the professors out of Manitoba, her name is Jennifer Katz. She, if, if you did, if you do your, she's got a lot of books, but anyway, she has a book and it's called teaching to diversity. And in her second chapter, she leads with, and she talks about the fact that the whole idea of universal design for learning and education was actually, it, it, it came from uh, the world of architecture and the idea that, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, we were trying to make buildings more accessible for everyone because it was just slaying architects that now we were make we were making buildings more accessible because it became law, but we were putting a ramp in the back 
alley or we were putting, they were entering through the side door and architects are, they're all about that beautiful hotel lobby. And they just saw, they thought, you know what, no one, people with uh, disabilities can't experience this building the same way as all the other people because they don't get to come in through that front door and experience, you know, the, which, which is, which is the gift that architecture brings, right? Just that, that, that opulent lobby and get that to experience it the same way. And then, so what they started doing was they started obviously incorporating into that front entrance ramps and elevators and escalators, things like that, so that it was more accessible. And they started realizing, oh, well, mums with strollers can get in now and things like that and how it benefits uh, everyone. So I think that's what I, when I think about inclusion is I think about the benefit for everyone and how it doesn't have to be, uh, we don't have to be reinventing the wheel. We just need to think like the architects and we need to offer them, you know, the, the, that big opulent lobby of an education so that they can reach their full potential. I don't know if I'm communicating it though, the impactful way that it had for me, but it just, to me, it was the most beautiful description of why we need to get it right. Mm -hmm. You know, why we need to just, you know, not, not treat it like, Oh, well, we're going to teach this child and then we're going to teach everyone else. Well, no, let's plan from the outset to teach every child and that's, what's going to help every child. And that's, what's going to mean when you all of a sudden have a student with needs plunked in your classroom, your head's not going to be spinning because you already planned for this child. I think that's what I think about. I know that gets into the more, the, the pedagogy of the work and why you, and how you do it. But I just think it's for me, inclusion is the work, the, the work you do to make sure that they get that same experience as the other, as all students. And it benefits them all. In and authentic think- ways too, right? Like in very authentic ways. And I feel like some of the barriers that we're up against though with inclusion, they involve, it's it's teacher training. Our teachers, I feel like coming out of university, we're not, and me too, and I took it very seriously. We're not trained to do it. Um, and so we're, we're learning on the job, we're apprenticing, but to whom, under whom are we apprenticing then? If we're learning on the job how to offer meaningful inclusion, with the exception of, you know, maybe the two units we had to do in university that were inclusive and, um, you know, understand by design and all of those things. Right. So short of that, who's teaching us? And so, you know, I know the student support services teachers, um, we we carry that burden, but we're kind of in the same we're in the same boat in that you have this incredibly diverse classroom that probably was abandoned. How do we start creating something authentic, something meaningful, instructionally appropriate um, that that is involves all kids in meaningful ways without support? You know, I feel like it's, you know, inclusion is beautiful. I read that same, that same, um, not anecdote, but that same kind of visual too, when I was going to school and I, it is beautiful, you know, just like one ramp changes everything. It changes accessibility of a building to almost everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do we make a ramp in education in a, set, in a way that makes sense and works and is curriculum appropriate, instructionally appropriate that won't kill the teacher that, you know, I feel like I'm just saying about all of these barriers, but I'm relatively new in this position too. And I feel it because these teachers are coming and saying, I don't know how to do this. And, or I don't know how to level uh, assignments. I don't know how to do this. I wouldn't know where to start. 
And then you wonder whose job does it become then to create a program that's inclusive? I don't just thinking. I find too that um, sometimes teachers, not for the most part, get caught up in the label of a child or a designation of a child, or I have a child who has these needs and these students don't. But really what I have found is a lot of the recommendations and accommodations that we make for students who have the labels is just good teaching practice. And really what works for one student, if it's good teaching practices, works for everybody. Kind of like Sandra, what you were saying, that one strategy for a specific child doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to be spinning that a good strategy is going to work for all learners or yeah. most of the learners. And when yep. teachers are feeling overwhelmed, if they think good teaching practices is often meeting the needs of this diversity. And I think learning, like you'd mentioned, Melissa, like who's teaching us, who's helping us. I think there is a lot of power behind us helping each other. Mm-hmm. And that it doesn't have to be workshops or separate professional development, that we in the school have a lot to teach each other. I think a key, though, is time to collaborate, time to get together, to actually bounce ideas off each other, to support each other. That's, yep. that's, that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. That we can feel really overwhelmed by it, but really just helping each other out in our roles and our experiences and that just that good teaching, what we consider good teaching, d- differentiating, um, you know, those accommodations that work for all students and not getting hooked up on, I have this child that has this designation and this label and is on an IEP. Well, you know, what works for that kiddo is going to work for that kiddo too and support all the learners. So um, what do you feel is the role of an ed support teacher? Like we kind of touched on the philosophy of inclusive education, but like just in your day-to-day practices, you know, for somebody who's maybe thinking of becoming a educational support teacher, student support services teacher, what would a typical kind of day look like as, um, as a teacher that's supporting diverse learning and teachers? Sandra, what do you think? The gift that I find in the role is you get, you get to collaborate. Like your, your role is to collaborate with each of those classroom teachers. And I don't know how many times I've said to a teacher, like, you know, we just have this, this situation that seems impossible. We're trying to support this student. We're not quite getting it. And you can tell the students in distress, it's not going well, you know, so then we, we come together, you know, whether it be just the school-based team, the classroom teacher, the, the ed support teacher, the, the, um, the EAs, the administrators, and I've said to um, teachers before, I've said, you know what, in my experience, and this is my experience, like this is the experience I bring, is a faith in the process is just like what you said, Lorianne, is if we just get these people, these beautiful humans in a room together, we're going to come up with something. We're absolutely going to solve this for this child and and help them to spur forward to their next, you know, potential growth haven't been a part of any collaborative situation where we haven't looked back and gone, wow, we did it, you know, kind of thing. Well, the student did it more than anything. The student did Mm -hmm. it, but we supported them to get there. Um, Bringing the parents in, I missed that big piece. So if we can just get everyone to put their heads together. And I think that's something I have to remind myself is I don't need to come up with all the solutions. And I know that was something that I I got mired in a little bit for a part of my time as a 
administrator thinking that somehow, you know, now you're the leader and you have to be the one to come up with solutions. I think you need to be the one to call the team together as an administrator, as an EST, and even as a classroom teacher say, you know, we all got to sit down and have some time. But I think the role, I think it's to, to encourage and to collaborate and just journey with, with them on those things because they need another person as a sounding board as it's happening real time. I don't know. I, I could say more because you were talking about what the typical day is, but I can, I can talk after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one big thing though is, and, and I don't know where this could fit into our talk. We were reflecting as a team at our school and even, I have even part of the team in the division and just saying, you know, there's the gift of this COVID year, if there'll only be one, but um, the gift has been is there's, there's a lot more overt permission to take care of the hearts of our students. And I find I, it, that is proving to be very fruitful is to take, you know, when they say you teach to their hearts and then you teach to their minds, you know, I think that's proving very fruitful. I had three students on IEPs and we put together very, you know, goals where we were just like, I don't know, are they even going to be able to meet these? And all three of these students who were some of our most intense needs in the school just slayed all all their goals. And we've had to make a new comprehensive IIP for them. And I think it's because we're just, we're just, we're just really taking good care of them and not as teachers, not panicking. At least that's the, that's the culture that I'm, I'm working in right now in my school where we're just really trying to take care of their hearts. So that's been fruitful. So I kind of gave you guys a loaded question, you know, like, What's the role of an ed support teacher? What's your typical day? But, you know, when it comes down to it, as a ed support teacher, what do you find most satisfying and what would you say most challenging? How about you, Melissa? What do you find uh, at the end of the day? Okay, satisfying um, when I have a kid who comes to school because he knew he had reading today with me. I find that one very satisfying. It's like, I came today because I know I have reading with you in period two. And that fills my heart and it will never, ever stop filling my heart. Um, challenging. I think still working out, you know, what Sandra is saying, the bigger picture stuff, like, don't panic. We will come together. I am, you know, in the training, the additional training that you get to become certified to work in a position like this. It's very much, you become the head problem solver. That's how it's mandated, you know, at the U of S where I did it, it's you're the problem solver. And I still feel a lot of pressure in that. And that's, that was insightful. I took that away from what you said, Sandra, and that not everybody has to, or you don't have to be the problem solver, but maybe just the one who gets the team together to solve the problem. Um, I find that challenging. I find, um, um, I don't know, like, just the don't panic. You know, I feel like, I feel like <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't panic. But I feel like, um, yeah, I, I sometimes need to start every conversation off when we're talking about an incident or something like that, you know, with the team that's involved with it. Okay, guys, don't panic. We'll come up with a solution for this. But, um, you know, Sandra, but I think what you had said was the teaching to their hearts first. I feel so grateful. I feel so privileged to be in this position. I know I've told that to both of you in the past before, like what a privilege I, it is to work in a position like this where 
I get to look after these kids in more than just teacher academic way, but that I get to be effective by virtue of making a relationship with them first. You know, I don't know. I think, yeah, like the bigger picture is what is challenging, but the, what keeps bringing me back is just these cool kids who I get to make relationships with who come to school because they get to read with me. Mm -hmm. You know, how cool is that? I don't think there's anything cooler than that. (laughs) I agree. Thanks for sharing, Melissa. Both of you are in a position where you get to work closely with classroom teachers. So what do you feel is the biggest challenge that classroom teachers are facing uh, using the inclusive model? And how can ed support teachers support those teachers with these challenges? Can I, I'll go first. I'll talk about some of the challenges that I've seen. I know Sandra's going to have a good list too. She's super experienced with this, more, much more than me. But I think the challenge is um, I see these teachers who really care and who really, really want to make a difference. And they really want to offer effective tier one teaching, you know, good intervention right in the classroom. They want to do the best that they can. And these teachers I just think of my daughter's teacher, for instance, stretching themselves so thin to hit every outcome that they can with this kid and make a difference and make the learning practical and realistic and attainable. But then they're not supported. You know, like they're doing it on their own. And it's like you've got kids with learning issues or behavioral issues. And I feel like the classroom teachers are up against I had a teacher tell me after I had done in class support in his classroom, he feels like Sisyphus. You know, that story of the man who had to roll the boulder up the mountain, only every night it rolled right back down to the bottom. And every day he had to restart this process. And this teacher feels frustrated and unsupported, even with support in the classroom. These teachers care so much. They care a lot. And it's like they're struggling to get to where they need to get to. And I think that it is so, these issues are so ingrained into our culture of school that Some people are throwing their hands up and saying, I don't know what to do. And then you have a little baby special ed teacher like me coming in. I've been in ed support my whole career, but officially in this capacity, it's only my second year. And I'm going, I don't know what to do either. Like, I will support you and we can work together in this and we'll get to the end together and we'll support them the best way we can. But then there's me. That's me trying to be that problem solver again. Right. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what Sandra has to say. How do ed support teachers support these? teachers. And I can say, you know, like with my experience, I sometimes I see the um the despair in a teacher's eyes and because of my experience, like I have a little more faith in the process than they maybe do that that you know what? The first time we ask a, a parent to go and get some medical advice for their child um from their doctor, it it might take six times, you know? And it might take until next school year. But the thing is, this is an important journey that you're on with the family. And and just to know that you're still doing something, even though it doesn't feel like you're doing something. Um, that, you know, you might have a student who's eloping from your classroom repeatedly. And, you know, we all know the story of the child that's doing that. And then it all comes together for them. And all of a sudden they do want to be in the classroom and it's just, that was their journey and that's how they had to get there. So kind of having faith in the process. And I, 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 um, I see teachers struggle with that, especially young teachers. I think you're, you're bang on Melissa when you say they do not prepare you. They, they make you look up one 
in your undergrad, they make you look up one learning disability and some good strategies for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And in yep, both absolutely. Of our kids are even going to get diagnosed with a learning disorder because the services aren't there. The services are less and less there. So you have to, we, we have to proceed as if uh, we don't self-diagnose them or anything like that, but we proceed as if you have students with all of these profiles of learning challenges in your classroom. They have students that are, have numeracy difficulties and we know they have it reading difficulties. We have to go with the profile. So I think, um, I think, I think what I, um, uh, I want to tread lightly here, but I, um, <laughs> I see the difference that having resources makes mm-hmm. when, when, you know, uh, you have like, for example, we're lost. I've been in a meeting where we don't, we don't know how best to support a child moving forward. And not only do we get a school-based team together, but we get an opportunity to have and, and this, we're talking for a great, a three-year-old pre-K student. I've sat in on this where we have SLP there. We have the SLP that specializes in R&R. So we get two. We have a learning coach. We have OT. We have all three administrators. We have the classroom teacher. We have every EA that works in that classroom. We have me. Everyone's talking about deciding where the student's, student is at and wh- what the next step is. And then we're all coming up with plans. And as the EST, sort of in the middle of that, bringing, making sure, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talked about kind of spurring some of that on to happen, you know, whether it's equipment in the sensory room, things like that. So we just come up with a lot of different strategies. And I think that helps a teacher not to feel like they're in it alone. And, and oh, Ed's like, we can have in the room and then, yeah, and I think that comes with with larger divisions, but I I see that the this province keeps cutting that stuff. Like it's not our divisions cutting it; it's our divisions trying to make the bottom line work. Um, and so I just I I worry about that, and so I feel like there's increasing pressure pressure on the classroom teacher. So mm-hmm. I think that's the challenge. Is that yeah, yeah? I'm hearing come up is just that importance of collaboration. Mm-hmm. and supporting each other. And like, I can't help but think of like that quote, it takes a community to raise a child. It's almost like when we're looking at educating children, it takes a community in itself within that, you know, the the classroom teacher, admin, ed support teachers, speech language pathologists, like all of us coming together with our knowledge, our expertise. And it's really something I think when looking at meeting the needs of diverse students, you cannot be your own little island. Like, we have to be supporting each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a classroom teacher, having worked with a team like you were talking about, Sandra, last year, I just, it just made a world of difference. Like I had quite a few students that we had to meet about. And I just think having those people that you know you could rely on for support, like after that initial meeting, you've made a connection. So then there's been a few times where I've just, emailed the OT and been like, Oh, this is what we're dealing with now. Any ideas? And she just emails me back like, Oh, try this, try this or a phone call, right to the consultant and just saying, Oh, this is like the progress we've made. Now we're kind of at a stalemate. Where do you think I should go? And just having that connection in that community was like, made a difficult year that much better for me as the teacher and also for those students, right? 
I was in a much better position to support them. So I think, yeah, the power of collaboration is key with inclusive education. Okay, so let's talk educational assistants, teacher assistants, paraprofessionals. Um, Their title seems to change quite often too, Um, but they have an important role in being part of the team and in supporting students. You know, just throwing it out there, Sandra and Melissa, what are your thoughts on the role of a teacher assistant within the, you know, supporting the needs of the students? Sandra, what do you think? Um, You know, again, that book that Jennifer Katz wrote, The Teaching to Diversity, I remember she said it in there and she said true inclusion um, means that instead of having a, a certified teacher in a classroom and an educational assistant, you fund two certified teachers in that classroom. Uh, I don't think that's fiscally like realistic. And I also feel like uh, the EAs that the EAs that I work with and the roles we put them in, they are wholly capable of doing angelic work, like the work of, of angels in the classroom mm-hmm. with these kids. Like they're the, there are some real difference makers. Uh, I think they're key. They're, they're, if we, like I can think of, uh, how we um, move around educational assistance within the school to respond to truly our most in, intense situations, our most our, meet the needs of our most in, our students with the most intense needs. Uh, to be responsive to, honestly, sometimes it's putting out fires, really, and um, the way I've seen. Um, the, uh, I think of four pillars that are that our EAs in the school that I work in play. We have, uh, and we're pretty deliberate about this. We have some some EAs where their their work with students is just to help students feel safe at school. Like you go be with this child and foster attachment so that they can feel safe at school, or we'll set aside time in the sensory room where they go and they play with the child. Then it's, you know, the framework is teach them to play so that they can play to learn. You know, if they're not, if they're, if they're constantly breaking down their relationships in their classroom, well have be that, be that partner, that attachment partner, that play partner that can teach them some of those skills and spur them on. So as EST and classroom teacher, we put together a lot of that programming for them to work on. And that's usually in a sensory space. Uh, we have we have EAs that do reference and regulate programming. Um, we I, I like the way we frame it. It's the learning to look so that you can look to learn. And finally, the regulation piece. I think that you know we all know the EAs that know enough to pull up a chair and just start rubbing a kid's back and helping them get going, or giving them a little nugget of success, a little hurdle help with something they're working on, so that they don't get stuck. I mean, I think they're re. They're reading the room while we're kind of, as teachers, we're, we're up here trying to get that lesson done, things like that. So I think, I think it's a, a very important piece, um, major respect for the work that they do. And we, we put tall orders on them all of the time. A um, lot of, like, I don't think, honestly, I don't think I'm built to work one-to-one with a student all day. I don't, I don't think I could do that. But yet these these people are able to do it and do it in an effective life life saving, not even just life changing way. There's lives saved with the work that they do with these students, which is why I think we often feel like we wish we could have more, mm-hmm. more bodies to do that 
life-saving work in a classroom. And, you know, to, to talk about you or to bounce off what you had said, Sandra, like these, these EAs are working with kids who are so far on the periphery that, you know, they might, man, there's nobody who would want to work with them and these EAs run to them, you know, and they support them and they make them feel safe. And these kids eventually will, they ask for them. Well, where is she today? You know, she's supposed to be here. You know, they, yeah, they provide such an essential service. So essential. And so different than the role of a teacher, like you were saying, Sandra, while we're up there doing something very important too, but they're down in the trenches helping these kids. And yeah, I don't think I'm built to work one-on-one with the same kid all day either. You know, they're special. They're cut from a special cloth, that's for sure. And to know that the day that things start going well for that child, we we want to foster that independence so that we'll start to pull the that EA support away from them. And then that EA's job is going to be to go to the next student that's... um. That's just, that's just not able to regulate through their day. Mm-hmm. So just seeing where their support is needed. I can back away from this student and now this student needs me. And I think too, like a, a, a T or an EA's support goes beyond just supporting academics too. Like, you know, in some roles it's communication and personal care, you know, helping with basic needs to get through the school day. So Yeah. Lots of respect. Shout out to our educational assistants. That's for sure. Another uh, important relationship is the relationship that teachers and ESTs have with the families. Um, And as ESTs, you guys are responsible for working closely with families and communicating needs of a student. Um, What has been your experience in working positively with families and creating those important relationships? I work really, really hard on this, uh, on creating um, good and safe relationships with parents. I just, I have my own experiences with my own child who accesses special services. And I just, I put myself in those parents' shoes. And I think I feel like I have a special, I've got special experience with this because I've been on on the other end of the desk when there's been especially teachers trying to create relationships with me. Um, so I work really, really hard to be that person that they can call and that they can trust and that they can question, um, that they can ask for like, Hey, they're coming home crying. We need to fix this. And I didn't know that they were going home crying or going, you know, arriving at home crying. Thank you for telling me, you know, and if you, I just, Again, I, I say over and over, I'm really new in this specific position, but that was one of my primary concerns was that I think to effectively get to the kid, I'm, I'm good. I always say, I got to try to get, I got to try to get to mom, you know, or auntie or cuckum or somebody. I have to try to get to them too. And when they trust me and then their child trusts me, it just, it feels like it's, we're able to work it together, you know? And, you know, in early on in this process, I don't know if I've ever had a challenging relationship as a special ed teacher. I mean, as a classroom teacher for 16 years, absolutely. But as a special educator, I don't know. I've approached it in a different way. Um, I don't know, not necessarily approached it, but I put a really big focus on um, communicating effectively and developing positive relationships with parents. How about you, Sandra? Uh, I think I, so my first several years of teaching were, you know, you were, 
you were lucky as far as parent involved, you know, being in a resident residential treatment facility, like those were kids that were largely wards of the crown. Um, you were lucky even to have a, a social worker show up to a case meeting. Uh, and, uh, definitely working with youth in custody, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to have a link with family. And, and then when I, when I moved over to public education and I went straight over to being an administrator and I remember, I, I, I can remember the first time a parent came in my office and just ripped into me. And I remember in my mind thinking, good for you good for you for advocating for your kid and just coming in and just busting it, you know, kind of thing. Like, cause I thought you're here, you're present, you're here. Right. And you're hurting too. Right. So I found, I just, I have no chip on my shoulder for parents who towards parents who are just struggling to advocate for a child the best way they know how. Um, and just, I think I just, I just accept them where they're at and understand that, there, yeah, we, we journey with parents on, on all fronts, you know, especially with the, the young ones and you're putting them on an IAP to start and trying to help parents to understand that, you know, you're not signing a diagnosis by having a child on an IAP. This is a, um, how that can be able to have a really positive, talk about how you can have a really positive impact on a student's progress if we set some uh, extra goals outside the curriculum, things like that. So I think, uh, I think probably the, my my biggest thought on parent engagement is I'll I'll take parents however they come. You know, if they you know, if one day they can't they're barely making it so they hang up the phone on me, but they're going to mm-hmm. take me all the next day, I'll take them wherever they're at. And I know not all parents are like that, but it's just it's just celebrating um the fact that you have an opportunity to work with parents to support their child. That's a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Sandra and Melissa. So do either one of you have any closing thoughts before we wrap it up? Any advice for teachers or supports or resources that you have found useful in your journey as an educational support teacher? I think my a big piece of growth for me this year has been um, I'm, I'm working with a lot of the students that Brittany taught last year. And just you know, like it never occurred to me before, you mean, you're working with students in grade one and, you know, when we work with students, say in grade five and we go, you know, yeah, there are, there are a few grade levels behind, you know, you think about that. And when you're working with students in grade one, I, I think for the first time I was accessing pre-K, K curriculum, you know, those essential learnings and just really thinking about and I've reflected on this with other teachers is just sometimes you forget about that, you know, that sometimes we forget about the child development piece and just this, this year work is working to support these students has really, you know, instead of going, um, geez, that kid, it's just always knocking over kids blocks. Like he should know that by grade one. Right. And just think, you know, when we've done a lot of work on, thinking about what developmentally play looks like. And that's why we have, you know, we might have, we have 15 minutes every day. I think of one student where an adult goes and plays with them so that they can learn to play with someone who's going to play with them where they're at and play with them the way they like to be played with. And they won't have all of these conflicts and they can just learn to have some really good solid play skills and take those play skills. Like ask to play something, ask for a piece, things like that, instead of, 
not knowing what to do. So you just go and you knock over the, you don't know how to join. Mm -hmm. You just go and you knock over the block. I mean, that's been a lot of really (coughs) revisiting things for me, maybe just because I'm, I'm supporting pre-K and kindergarten, but I'm just, you know, you think about, I had a, I had a teacher who said to me, you know, I know you're doing some developmental play work with some EAs and students in grade one. I've got a student in grade three who could really use a bit of that support Sam problems, navigating things, navigating recess, things like that. It's made me look at things totally differently and not, you know, ex- and not being at min, like this isn't a discipline issue. This is developmental, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So, I mean, I guess that's, that's, that's a kind of a big aha piece for me that happened as an educator this year. So the importance of play. Hey, check out the, check out the pre-K and kindergarten curriculum. That's what I, they're beautiful documents. And you know I what? Will. I always wonder what's good for pre-K and K. All of a sudden, does it stops at grade one? That's probably good stuff for grade one too. And <laughs> I think all of us would benefit from some playing once in a while. That's for sure. Yeah. Melissa, yeah. any thoughts before we finish up here? Well, you know, I don't. You know, I have I haven't dealt with the littles. That's not Lorianne kind of helps out on that side, which is good because Lorianne, to tell you the truth, I had to help the pre-Ks off the bus the other day. And I was absolutely like at a loss. It's like I wasn't even a parent. I'd completely forgotten how to manage little babies. You know, (laughs) I supervised nap time. I had to spell off a teacher so she can go to meeting. I supervised nap time. And that was the most high stakes thing I've done in recent memory. (laughs) I thought they're going to wake up and they're going to cry when they see my face. And just they're snorting and rolling over. And I thought, are they okay? And yeah, Yeah. I'm with you. I squeezed their hands too tight. And it's like, you think I I, honest to God had three-year-olds, basically three, three three-year-olds at one time, basically. So... (laughs) How do I know how to do this? Okay, so mine, I don't know. Here's from my limited experience, but comes from lots of years in the classroom. Um, I really believe, um, and I say this over and over, and people can name the book I got it from, but I really, really believe that if a kid can do well, they will. And I feel like if, um, you know, um, there, this might be, you know, if we've, we've all had bad days and we've all had the knee jerk reactions that this kid just needs more discipline. And so I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the more of the older grades, they're undisciplined or they're disrespectful. And I want to scream it from a rooftop that if they could be respectful, they would. If they could show self-restraint, they would. Um, And that sometimes these kids that are the hardest to love need the hardest advocating. um, And they need to feel the safest. So if they could, they would. Um, Because why wouldn't they? You know? They're not because they can't. And I know it seems like I'm talking in circles, but I just have so many kids in mind that I think that that I'm talking their teachers off the ledge, promising them that if these kids could do better, they would do better. And that it's our job to help to help them figure out these ways of doing better, you know? And so that's, I go to work and I think about that every day where, you know, when I'm tired, like if we were talking about how tired we'd be for this meeting, but when I'm tired and I have to remind myself, maybe I'm losing patience and I just, I don't know what to do. And I remind myself if they could do better, they would do better. So um, that's a saving grace for me. It's what gives me compassion and fills my heart again for these kids. And it's what allows me to genuinely be happy to see them and to try to build relationships with them because I get the privilege of helping them try to figure out ways of doing better, you know, with things. Yeah. 
So true, Melissa. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I found what's really coming through in, in our interview today is the importance of relationship, whether it's with each other, with our students, um, with our parents, our families, outside agencies, like just how important connections and relationships are. And, you know, that leads to that whole collaboration that we don't have to do it alone that we're there to support or we need to be there to support one another. It's a big task meeting the diverse needs of students. And it's okay if we don't know all the answers. Um, we can find them. We can look out to resources at the school in each other, out in our communities. So connections, relationships, collaboration. And it's okay if we don't know the answers. I mm -hmm. think sometimes we need to be a little bit gentle with ourselves. And, you know, today maybe wasn't a great day, but tomorrow can be better because we're doing the best that we can, too. So thank you, Sandra and Melissa, for sharing your thoughts, your experience on inclusive education and the challenges and joys of student teaching student diversity in the classroom and school.